You're listening to You Might Have a Point. Each week, I bring on a different guest to discuss politics and related topics. The point of the show is to get to know more about what the guest believes and why, which is why we primarily discuss their own views and not my own. I believe in learning about a broad range of viewpoints so that even when you disagree with someone about a lot of things, you can still sometimes say, you know, you might have a point. You can find out more at youmighthaveapoint.com. I am pleased to welcome to the podcast today uh, Dr. Xavier Bonilla. He has a doctorate in clinical psychology and currently practices clinical psych. He has a few self-published media pieces on Medium and is the host of the podcast Converging Dialogues. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. So the way I like to start off each podcast is just asking you, how would you describe yourself in terms of your ideology or worldview? Well, that's a good question. Um, I would say I'm pretty... Um, but somewhat a theoretical in some ways, um, in terms of, in terms of ideology, mm-hmm. um, I think in terms of worldview, I definitely consider myself a human humanist secularist mm-hmm. for sure. Um, some people will throw the kind of atheist label, which is fine. It's always a weird thing to describe somebody based on what they don't believe in as opposed right. to what they do believe in, but that's fine too. But in terms of worldview, I'm a really big believer in um, humans and the human spirit and the human condition as flawed as it is and trying to um, see how we can better ourselves and each other. Cool. And so uh, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your podcast, Converging Dialogues. I'm just curious if you could explain what it is and why you started it. Yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. Yeah, so I have a, a podcast, Converging Dialogues. Um, you know, I had a bunch of people tell me over the years, ah, oh, man, you should do a podcast. You'd be great at that. And I'd be like, no, no, I don't, I don't have anything to say. There's like mm-hmm. a million podcasts out there. Everyone's got a podcast, right? I don't want to do that. And, you know, it takes time and, you know, energy and effort. And I got a bunch of things going on. And, um, so I was kind of not agnostic about it, but I was definitely, not um you know raring to go jumping at the success yeah 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 i wasn't i wasn't jumping at it so i kind of came into it kicking and screaming um and so um you know i i over the past i guess year and a half i've been wanting to put more output so i do a ton of reading so anybody that follows me online you know every other other day or a couple times a week I'm posting something that I'm reading and uh I'm a I have a voracious appetite for for mm-hmm. reading so um yeah so I, I didn't want to just like consume information right and just you know kind of be a type of kind of encyclopedia I wanted to put something out into the world as best mm-hmm. I could so sure that was some of the writing kind of the, the kind of uh pieces that um that you mentioned so the podcast was kind of that. How how could I um, do some output of sorts? And I think I'm better verbally than I am written, although I'm terribly long-winded and tangential. So that's uh, always my my problem. But uh, yeah, so so I decided to have a podcast that would kind of get with people that are specialists and scholars. I mean, in theory, I'll talk to anybody, but kind of having people that are um, doing research knowledgeable about some particular field. Yeah, yeah, sure. 
Yeah. And um, so I wanted to do that. And I've been very fortunate. I've Every guest I've had uh, has been absolutely wonderful, super gracious and generous and just some really wonderful, smart people. So I have a lot of fun doing it. It, it is a it is a lot of fun and I kind of have a rhythm now. And so uh, greatly enjoy it. Everyone that listens should go and subscribe. Nice. <laughs> so it's on all major platforms. Cool. So um, I want to ask you about the title, Converging Dialogues, I guess. Um, it might be fair to describe a lot of discussion, especially centered around politics as diverging dialogues. So is the intent there to do the opposite? Yeah. Yeah. My intention was to have a, you know, a big thing. And I think in academia and I think just in society at large is I like viewpoint diversity, right? I, I like to hear people's opinions and ideas, you know, and I, and I like hearing, I like having honest and, you know, kind of raw conversations about it. And so my goal is never to have a debate or to have, you know, win you over to my argument or mm -hmm. score points or um, it's really not that it's, it's how do we connect through ideas and understand. And, you know, you can still walk away vehemently disagreeing with each other, but that hopefully the dialogue will bring people together to say, you know what, I totally disagree with this person but at least I understand them better. I understand mm -hmm. their ideas better. I can understand some of their motives for believing this way. And um, yeah, so that was the title. Although it took me forever. I remember my wife and I, we created a list of titles and she helped me out with it. And I just was like, none of these are good. I didn't like any of them. And, and she was like, yeah, I don't really like any of them. And then and then I had to look up ones that were already taken. And so it was just, it took forever. Um, and then finally I, I found it. I was like, there it is. There it is. And like, yep, that's the one. And so we, we kind of, she helped me out with that, but, uh, that was the one that stuck. Nice. Yeah. It's funny. Um, both in terms of people suggesting I should do a podcast and also in terms of the process of naming it, it sounds like we have very similar origin stories. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, let's move now into um, your piece on radical centrism, I guess. Um, do you, do you identify as a radical centrist? <laughs> um, is sure. that a manifesto? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was curious cause you didn't mention it at, at, at first, um, when I asked you about your ideology or worldview, but, um, yeah, yeah could you kind of ex explain what the, some of the main points in that piece is? Yeah. 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 So that's a really long piece, which again, as I said at the beginning, uh, terribly long winded. Uh, mm -hmm. so, um, I'm always really grateful when people actually read the whole thing and get something out of it. I, some of it's kind of, uh, I guess, abstract or heady in some way, mm -hmm. in some parts of it. Um, but I, I wrote that piece to try and say, you know, a few things, uh, a lot of things, really. But I guess the main points in that piece were people, I feel like they have to politically, but then I think just in, in our, our society at large, that you have to become on one side of one issue, right? Mm -hmm. So as an example, if I'm a, a Democrat or liberal, you know, I have to pretty much agree with everything on that side, right? Now, people would claim, no, of course not. Um, but, you know, if I'm, if I'm, let's say I'm a, a liberal and I see, yeah, but I'm pro-life. They would, I mean, you know, you're just, you're, you're going to made a, be made a pariah, right? No mm -hmm. one on the left is going to be like, Are you, you know, climate change is, you know, it's important, but you know, it's a little overblown. I'm not full on board with the whole, like, you know, we need to 
buy an electric car and or whatever you know you would just be absolutely eviscerated right you can't you can't mm -hmm. you know and, and the same on the right you know if i'm conservative or if i'm a republican and you know the opposite right i'm like you know what i agree with most of these principles but you know we second amendment you know that's that doesn't cover you know gun gun rights and you know uh, I'm kind of pro-choice. I mean, again, conservatives would just, you know, absolutely, you know, nail you to the cross. I mean, you just, you can't say those things. You, you're going to get kicked out of your party. And so I, I feel like people are this way on a lot of things. It's just very polarized. It's very much this way of, you know, which camp are you in and which team are you on? And right. if you don't agree with me a hundred percent, then maybe you're not on the team or, you know, <laughs> all these things. And so, there's the centrism piece. Now, the centrism for most people, I think I mentioned this in the piece, is, well, kind of this milk toast, you know, boring. You're just on the middle and everything, and you don't have any passions, and you don't have any principles. You're just trying to keep the peace, and you just vote down the middle and everything, and, you know, pretty boring. And that's not what centrism is to me. I mean, there's centrists that are like that. Centrism, radical centrism to me um, is a way where you take things on the ideas, right? So I think for most of the time, you know, I'm probably center left on a lot of things, mm -hmm. but there are many things where I can say, well, you know, I can see this perspective and I can incorporate some of it from a conservative or libertarian and or progressive or things like that. So radical centrism is that, you know, you can hold multiple positions on a bunch of things at the same time, right? You don't have to just swallow the narrative of the RNC or the DNC. Mm -hmm. You don't have to, you don't have to be a, you know, a, um, you know, an anti-racist to not be against racism, you know, whatever, you know, you, you can say, you know, things are complicated. Things have, uh, a multivariate analysis of trying to understand them. And maybe we should be a little more humble, um, look at the complexities, be curious about how complex the world is and strive for more, you know, kind of honest compassion for how we treat each other. So radical centrism really does that is, you know, there's this in the piece I go on about kind of, uh, again, it's kind of the humanist kind of psychology of sorts of, you know, when you know yourself and when you feel somewhat well-rounded, I think that just comes out in the wash in our um, ideology and our politics and how our, you know, the culture war stuff, you know, where it's like, you know, you can have your opinions and you can have, centrists can have strong opinions about things. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't mean that they're just the center on everything, if that makes sense. Sure. So does it differ um much from the idea of being a heterodox thinker or is that more or less capturing the same thing there yeah i think it's it's probably very similar okay. um radical centrism was you know kind of my my sexy way of putting it but <laughs> right right yeah no it's i i googled that phrase a little while ago and it has come up every now and again people it? saying somewhat similar things yeah mm -hmm. I, and you know i i think it is because we are seeing increasing radicalization on the left or the right um and people who yeah and i think you and i both fall into this category like appreciate the passion of the arguments on both sides mm -hmm. but also want to demonstrate that 
just because we aren't wholly bought into either narrative doesn't mean we don't also have passion. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'll say another piece about this, uh, about this kind of radical centrism piece is that I think, again, I, I'm, I'm kind of staying political, but it's not just political, but mm -hmm. uh, for this example, you know, people will, will think that, you know, the thing I hear from a lot of progressive friends is, well, we just got to dream big. We got to dream big. We, you know, no one's going to get stuff done if you're not aiming for something bigger. You're not shooting for something bigger. And I can hear that. I can, I can definitely hear that. You know, conservatives will be like, whoa, whoa too much change, too fast. We got to keep this slow. We don't want to do that. That's going to cause problems, you know. And I think both have really important pieces to the general kind of zeitgeist, right? We need to have camps on both sides pushing and pulling and all of that. But I think where we have to not have um, disdain or um, treat it as something that's not important is this kind of pragmatic institutionalism, meaning how do we use our institutions that, you know, have their flaws, but, you know, they are part of, you know, in the United States, at least they are a part of our, um, our country and our culture and our history and tradition, you know, right? When you think about, you know, the House and the Senate and the Supreme Court and the presidency and how we do elections and um, all of these things, how do we use those institutions in a very, you know, practical, pragmatic, um, somewhat utilitarian kind of way? And I think that's where we say, okay, like, you know, I don't want to be in a, in, in a place where there's just, we just oscillate from party to party and everyone's doing what they want all the time. And then, you know, four, eight years later, then everyone else is doing it. And you just have perpetually people upset at each other all the time. It's like, that's not a way to, to kind of do society together. If you're trying mm -hmm. to, to, to where everybody has a, a, some kind of value or opinion, I think you have to take elements of, you know, kind of all sides and say, okay, what can we do with all of this? And we get something out of it. That means people on the left are going to be upset. People on the right are going to be upset. But it's a general net positive. And, um, and I think, to me, centrists are the best or moderates are the best at doing that. But the, the danger, and I, I think I mentioned this in the piece, is, you know, you don't want just moderate centrism without some of the, you know, more extreme versions of the left and right sides of parties. Because then it does, it can get stagnant. It can just mm -hmm. get very like, all right, this is what we do. And we just kind of go with the flow. You want people kind of pushing the, the conversation, pushing it to say, no, 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 we do need um, higher minimum wage, or we do need, you know, better, um, better laws for certain groups or, you know, Hey, we, you know, we, we, we want to be understanding about, you know, immigration or healthcare or things like that. So I think there's a utility, but I think where, where things happen and where progress happens is, some version of kind of pragmatic uh, institutionalism. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting because I was listening to um, this uh, new podcast. I found pill pod and they interviewed um, Noah Rothman. Um, the podcast hosts are concert or liberal, but um, Noah is a conservative and they were both kind of agreeing with, 
about their dissatisfaction with the status quo in different ways. They said we have very different solutions, but we're both dissatisfied with the status quo of like um, just kind of the the I, I don't know exactly what they're referring to, but the institutions currently, and that kind of tracks as well with public opinion polling about distrust in institutions. Um, and so, you know, coming at it from my own more conservative vantage point, like I would, I would think we actually are in a period of like significant flux and change. Um, and it's not necessarily that we need to like hold on to a lot of the past. I think there's a lot that's good in the past, but it's more that we need to think very cautiously about the new institutions that we create and the change that, that is coming, say with healthcare or something like that. Um, how does that resonate with you? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, again, I mean, not to make it a an either or or mm -hmm. something, but mm -hmm. one of the things I tell conservatives is like, look, you know, what's your what's your plan for the problems of the 21st century, right? Like, I'm tired of hearing about the good old days in the 50s. I mean, th yeah. there's some really wonderful things for that that happened in the 50s and 60s, and some really horrible things, right? And like. You know, I, I think most people characterize 1950, 1970, or, or excuse me, 1980, um, 70, 80 to, you know, best 20, 20 to 30 years in terms of economics and GDP and all that stuff. And like, sure, fair enough. You know, I mean, um, there's a lot of other things that went wrong, right? Wars and um, civil unrest. And but mm -hmm. I think economically for some folks, it was, yeah, you know, it was a good time. But <clears throat> okay fine you can take the spirit of some of those things but you know how do you i mean we're in the second decade of the 21st century now i mean what what's the see this is the this is Third the problem decade, with that actually, yeah is 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 you know conservatives like to pick on liberals a lot about well you know this like, like to beat up on all of their plans and all of their you know, they just want open borders and they just want to give handouts and they just want to, you know, government to fix everything. And it's like, yeah, sure. Fine. I hear that. I, I hear that. Then offer a better solution yeah. and yeah. a better option. If you just want to sit here and, you know, do some kind of like cartoon version of like a 1950s, you know, Americana kind of thing. Like, that's just not where we're at. Like, how do mm -hmm. you, you know, how do you deal with, you know, different types of you know, inequality, how do you deal with healthcare? How do you deal with, you know, the climate? How do you deal with um, automation? How do you deal with globalization? How do you deal with, you know, all these things that are happening for us, you know, going forward into a, 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 a future that is, you know, a digital age, you know, technological advances, you know, um, you know, big tech is kind of becoming a, a more um, interesting problem. Like what's your solutions for that? And if all you want to do is just, you know, you know, take a dump on liberals plans. Like, that's fine. Like, I hear that. And a lot of them I have criticisms for too, but you got to present your own plan. And I don't hear that a lot. And then in the reverse, I think, um, you know, <clears throat> liberals are, again, you know, shooting for the stars and some of that's fine, but it's like, okay, but you know, it's not the end of the world if you don't get everything you want. And nor, you want. nor is the green new deal like, right. actually possible in terms of finances at yeah, all. You yeah. know, yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. And like, you know, I think the thing for me is I'm fine if they want to put forward that kind of stuff as like your first kind of path, you know, it's like, it's like when you're, when you're, um, negotiating, when you're, when you're on eBay, 
mm-hmm. and you put your first kind of thing out and you're like, let me just feel the waters. And you're like, yeah, I'm not going to get this, but you know what? Maybe I will. Okay. And then someone's like, no, we're not doing that. But you know what? We're going to, here's our offer. It's like, oh, okay. No, let's keep this. Like as a bargaining chip, fine. But yes, but that's the thing. Like liberals can't be upset if it gets watered down and see it as a defeat because there was a healthy pragmatic option in the middle. And that's, that's where I do think it's this kind of all or nothing kind of thing, which is, I mean, just, I don't know. It just seems really immature and, (laughs) and kind of whiny and, you know, it's not workable. And so I think that, you know, we don't want that either. So, you know, again, it's kind of on both sides here. It's, there's issues with both of them where it's like, yeah, you know, uh, conservatives need to have some viable options. Um, and, and liberals need to not think it's a defeat because they get, you know, kind of balanced middle plan. So. Got it. Yeah. I actually misspoke earlier. It was Nate Hawkman, not Noah Rothman. Uh-huh. Um, I got them mixed up. Uh-huh. Um, Noah Rothman's another conservative. Um, so let's see here. Yeah. I wanted to move now to, um, uh, one other thought on your um, radical centrism piece that I thought was interesting. You talked about your spirit of openness and creativity. Um, and you said, when we find instinctual balance between our cognitions and emotions, we're able to do potentially the same for others in our society. Mm-hmm. And that's that's one thing that I've been reflecting on as well in, in terms of like uh, the the kind of emphasis on feelings over facts or facts versus feelings, you know, the objective subjective divide. Um, I do think that, you know, um, there is this question of modern life, right? Are are we going to be like data, like robots that just kind of process things in a completely abstracted matter, or will we emphasize the sort of raw visceral experience, um, of an emotional issue? Um, and how do we find that balance? So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm borrowing from Nietzsche here. So I, I kind of took from some of his ideas and, and thought about it myself and, and kind of gave my kind of uh, version spin on it. So <clears throat> for various reasons, Frederick Nietzsche, he's a German philosopher, he, he thought that, you know, our instincts were, should be primary, that they were really important. Um, because his, his claim, I'm, I'm giving the very, you know, <laughs> condensed watered down sure. paraphrase here, but you know, his, his idea is that our instincts are the primary way in which we came to, to be in life, right? We've come this far with our instincts further, you know, he talked a lot about this kind of will to power idea, which is this notion of, you know, everything is will to power, Right. You know, it's, it's not just your actual will to do something, but it's, it's almost like this kind of energy or force that's propelling us, you know, all organisms throughout the universe and through life to, to move and to progress, you know, kind of forward. And, you know, he saw in terms of this kind of vitality, right? How do we have this kind of zest or vitality for life? And in that way, Nietzsche's philosophy is a philosophy of life. And so <clears throat> he emphasized the instincts, right? Now, people take that and they just, you know, butcher it, right? It's like, oh, yeah, he's just saying to act on impulse, act on instinct. And it's not quite that. So where I tried to clarify it was, um, was that, yes, I, I'm kind of, you know, fatigued with this false dichotomy of objective subjective kind of thing all the time. Um, both are super important. They absolutely are. We both, we need both of them. So objectively, the objective world, the scientific method, 
you know, all of those things, we absolutely need that. We absolutely need to, to use that. We're, we're rational uh, social apes that are able to you know, reason through many things, make good decisions and sometimes bad ones. So we need the objective, right? The subjective is, you know, what is, you know, my perception or my experience of things or your experience of things and, and how does that kind of color and give more volume to some of these objective facts. So we're not robots and we're not just, you know, raw data. But I think the way that the society has it now um, is backwards. So it's <laughs> instinct at the bottom. And, and uh, if you think of it like a, a triangle, an inverted V, or I guess, or excuse me, a V, you know, it's objective, subjective, at the top, they're running everything and they're just dragging instinct that, you know, maybe it comes up, maybe it doesn't, but it's buried and it's not used very often. <clears throat> and I think it needs to be reversed. So the inverted V where you have instinct that's guiding things, but it's anchored and rooted in objective moral reasoning and subjective experiences, right? So how, and what makes us human, right? What makes us human is yes, the objective facts about us and the objective about the world and our reality, and then our subjective experiences. So our feelings and our senses, right? Those things and how we're able to, to manage them or not. Those things are at least what make us human. I think another piece though, that's there, which is true for all living organisms of sorts is our instincts. And I think if we have our instincts that drive us rooted again, rooted and anchored in objective uh, reasoning and subjective experiences, they can be very valuable, right? It won't be acting on impulse. It won't be just living in the moment, making horrible decisions or not, not caring about the other, but that the instinct allows us to make us more open to things about ourselves, make, a, make us more open towards other things uh, about other people, make us more open towards different experiences in life, make us more open towards things we wouldn't have considered that could be very valuable and positive for you know, living life. And so if you're always suppressing that, you just want you know, just straight facts all the way down the line, you know, you're, you're, you're missing a whole part of what it means to be human and a whole part of how to live. Um, in the same way with the subjective experience, right? If you overemphasize feelings and, you know, what you feel and how your, you know, what your, your lived experience is alone, that's also very important, but you don't want to block that out of your objective rationality. And you definitely don't want to block it out from kind of your instinctual, um, you know, elements as well. So that, that was kind of this idea of instincts are, are a way of opening us up for more creativity more openness and to, to further understand what it means to be us and to be human. Got it. Okay. So I might come back to that, um, radical syndrome piece later. I think it depends on how much time we have, but, um, I wanted sure. to get a chance to discuss your, um, healthy American nationalism piece. So could you summarize your case for what a healthy American nationalism is and what it looks like what, and, and why we need it? Yeah. Um, so I got pretty frustrated um, with nationalism being a dirty word mm -hmm. uh, for some folks. And I got frustrated with um, 
you know, certain people or certain, <laughs> certain half of the country, um, you know, just kind of monopolizing nationalism and just saying like, this is what it is, you know, um, or getting confabulated with other things like, you know, white ethnocentrism or, you know, some kind of totalitarian state or, you know, silly things like that. Um, I think nationalism, there's a, there's a, so the way I make it is that there's basically like many things, you can have a healthy or unhealthy way of doing nationalism, right? I think nationalism as a, as a, as a neutral term is how do you preserve a country's or state's um, history and culture through time that unites how that group of people in that one place are. It gives you an identity as a collective. That's not patriotism. Some people have criticized me for saying, like, well, you're just healthy nationalism is just patriotism. No. Patriotism is I love my country and I'm proud of my country. Great. We should all feel that way about our country, you know, within reason, right? I mean, you can mm -hmm. obviously tip over to an unhealthy version of that. No, Nas healthy nationalism is how do we have the traditions and customs and rituals of all folks through time that have given us a collective identity of what it means to be us. So, you know, if you ask folks in uh, United Kingdom, if you ask people in Denmark, if you ask people in Nigeria, if you ask people in Australia and India and Peru and Ecuador and Mexico, they all have some kind of uh, way of identifying, right? And, and many people will feel, some, sometimes it, when, when there's so many ethnicities <clears throat> or so many races within a country, right? Think of Brazil, for example. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to say what makes you Brazilian, right? You might say there's many different things, but many people will associate and align with their nation state, because it's like, you know what, you know, my, my family's from here, my family's from here, or maybe we've been here for generations, but you know what, we're all this. And the this would be a healthy sense of nationalism, right? That you, 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 you take pride in your fellow countrymen um, throughout all of time past, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and that they were curators and creators of what that national identity is and to to disregard or or diminish or disrespect traditions and cultures and uh, norms and and all of those things that we've established would be i think um not helpful now yeah. again Maybe even dangerous yeah and dangerous yeah. yeah now the unhealthy nationalism is what most people think of right it's this very um you know, aggressive, in-your-face, imperialist, you know, we're the best in the world, our, our customs, our traditions are amazing. You know, maybe it can get into some kind of, uh, you know, certain cultures or races are more superior than others. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, and so I think in the first half of that piece is kind of establishing what I kind of the, you know, longer version of what I just said. And then, um, and then the second half of the piece is, you know, kind of how I see the, the collective aspect of uh, what a healthy national, how we got there and how, what that means. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, yeah, it sounds like you're talking about 
almost somewhat related to what we just talked about with objective versus subjective. I can think of patriotism as being like a, you know, buying the civic creed and like the pledge of allegiance, but then nationalism is more of like a sense of cultural identity uh, as Americans. Sounds that sound mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. It's. I think I'm definitely. I. I'm willing to buy into that. Uh, it is a little tricky right because i think the left you know gets criticized i think sometimes rightly for being obsessed with differences and the many ways in which we're different um and and those are important but at the same time um we all kind of have um this sort of broad american identity that um is is also part of our shared culture and history um i'm curious if you could just talk a little bit about how you view um, American culture and as it relates to, I guess, um, your background as being half Latino, half white. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So uh, just before that, I mean, you know, I, again, not contradicting everything I've just said for the you know time we've been talking, but, mm-hmm. you know, the thing that about it is that, you know, I have a, I have a cup that is, got a certain cap on it, right? So to speak. So I care about all living organisms. Um, I don't like seeing the uh, waste of life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I care about humans <laughs> everywhere, past, present, the ones in the future. I think that's important for us as a species. Um, but yeah, I'm going to care more about people in Montana or Minnesota or Kansas or Nebraska, then I'm going to care more about people in Nepal. Why? Well, that's my countrymen. Yeah. Right now that has nothing to say, but I, I have, I know some people from Nepal. I'm not picking on you know, people from Nepal. <laughs> right. I, I, they're, I'm sure they're fine people. I've, I've nothing against them. Right. But there is something where it's, Hey, you know, this is this is my fellow countrymen. It's, it's like when, um, sometimes I guess it depends. But when I've traveled abroad in in uh, in Europe and and the Western Hemisphere, all you know throughout Latin America, you know, it always is nice when you see someone that's American, mm-hmm. right? Unless they're doing something really embarrassing, then you don't know them. Then I disown them. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, um, no, but yeah, it's 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 like it's it's a nice thing. And I and I've known other people from other countries. You know, um, if you're from uh, France and you're hanging out in Acadia National Park in Maine and you see another person that's from France, you're going to have some connection. And totally, right? That's your countrymen, right? Yep. They might be a horrible person, let's say. Or they might be an asshole. But it's still, hey, that's one of my people, right? Yep. Yep. And that doesn't mean that you hate or dislike or have anything against them. So. I think that's that's totally reasonable. I think that's totally fair, right? And I think you can do this in a nominal sense, right? I don't think it's it has to go to this kind of pernicious, aggressive, you know, sure. othering, you know, outgroup kind of thing. It's just like, hey, that's cool. There's another one of kind of my 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 people, you know, from my country, and that's pretty cool, right? That's all it has to be. But that yeah. that thing connects people, is what I'm saying. Is that mm-hmm. and what's connecting you is this healthy sense of national nationalism or pride. But but what is that? That the the that is 
culture, tradition, norms, mores, you know, history, understanding of that, all of those things. So to the second part of your question. So in the second part of my, my piece, I make the, the argument. Um, uh, some people have given criticism for it, which is, which is fun. I always like when people criticize my stuff. Is my argument is that everybody in the United States comes from somewhere else. We are all immigrants. Now, again, I'm not trying to smuggle in some progressive liberal stuff. I'm not doing that, <laughs> right? But, you know, because I, I hear that line uh, that, of rhetoric and it kind of, I get it, but it kind of gets on my nerves um, because I don't think it really gets at the depth of it. For me, part, America is not just an idea, right? I think it is that, but I don't think it's only that. But we have folks that come that... Everybody can trace their, uh, their roots somewhere else, mm -hmm. even Native Americans. Now, they might not be able to trace it when they, you know, cross the strait across, you know, Alaska from Siberia, you know, 10,000 years ago. But everyone comes from somewhere um, voluntarily or involuntarily. Right. You know, the, obviously the slave trade was, you know, horrific. But, you know, no one is coming is, is from here. Right. And that's one of the beautiful things about a young country is there is something about all of those people, if you, want, if you want to broaden it to max 500 years, right, let's say, but it's about 400 years. All of those folks, they were creating and building something new. Mm -hmm. They weren't from here, right? So you had folks from, from England and Wales and Scotland and Ireland and, you know, and then we have all these different immigration waves, you know, folks from Poland and Germany and um, much of, you know, Western Europe. Um, and then we've also had people from, uh, uh, China and the Philippines and Japan and then Latin America. You know, we've had these different waves of immigration that are contributing to what it means to be American. And so for me, a healthy nationalism is understanding that, yes, we're, we're rooted and based in some form of uh, immigration um, or even in the very ugly chapters of our history, some form of you know, being displaced or transplanted here, but then you can make it what you want. Mm -hmm. But you don't do that in the opposition of everything else that everyone's gone through and built on either. And I think that's where things start to kind of diverge a little bit, where it's like, yeah, we're all nation of immigrants. It's like, yes, yes, we are. But those immigrants made something. They created something. They created mm -hmm. the institutions we have. They created the traditions, they created the cultures, they created the norms, and we shouldn't, there are things that may be uh, not so flattering sometimes, there may be really, you know, again, ugly chapters, but we shouldn't throw out all of that, right? Or we shouldn't want to reform and change everything. We have to respect that, we have to admonish that, and we have to incorporate those things as we keep making the, you know, the new kinds of narratives and the new ideas about, you know, who we are. So that's, that's kind of the angle that I, that I come with it. Cool. Um, so we, you have, those were your two main pieces, but then I also read your um, Latinos and the American working class. Um, I, I don't know if you um, feel prepared to talk about that one, but sure. I did think it was interesting. And I've seen you make some similar points to um, Antonio Martinez. He's another um, Latino American writer um, from Miami, mm -hmm. just talking about how Democrats, tend to not understand why 
there's been somewhat of a shift more towards um, the Republican Party, especially among men. So uh, could you kind of give your analysis of that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, you know, one of the I've had a lot of, again, like I said, some pretty awesome people on my podcast. And one of the conversations that always sticks out to me and, you know, we're good friends is the one I did with Angel Eduardo. Um, and we talked about this. Uh, so if people want my full download, you should check out that conversation. We got okay. pretty loose and pretty, pretty honest with it. Uh, you know, he's Dominican and, you know, and lives in New York and my eggs hatched here, but my dad's from Central America. So we were able to kind of talk about kind of showcase the kind of different kind of uh, uh, um, examples of this. So yeah, I, I think what I claim and what he's claimed and Antonio's claim and a lot of people have claimed is you, you got to throw out in some ways this notion or this idea of the Latino vote, right? Mm. That doesn't fucking exist. Can I, can I, can I swear here? Sorry. Uh, sure. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. sorry. Um, that doesn't, that doesn't exist. Right. Because people that are in Florida have different priorities than people in Arizona or people in Texas or people in, in the DC area or people. Why? Well, if you're just trying to understand, now look, let me, let me back up here. There are things that kind of thread Latin people together, mm -hmm. right? You know, Angel and I, we, we joke about this, you know, in, in that episode where, you know, we all like beans and rice. We all like Latin music. We all, you know, celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve, probably, you know, you know there's, there's things about it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, grandma's really important to us. You know, <laughs> there's things that, um, are kind of like your, you know, the language, the staple things about what it means to be Latin, right? Um, and you can maybe, you know, say other things about, you know, what it means to be Latin, generally fine. But outside of that, though, Latin folk are no different for me than anybody else in the United States. They all care about their families. They all are, for the most part, pretty hardworking. And they, you know, when they migrate from different Latin American countries, they're coming here predominantly for that or for education or, or service in the military. They want better opportunity, like a lot of immigrants come to the United States for that. But what happens is, is that it, it, if, if you're looking just at what's your last name, what's the color of your skin, and what's your ethnicity, and that's going to tell me everything I need to know for these five bullet points, that's garbage. Because what starts to happen is you, at the very least, acculturate and or assimilate in a healthy way to the region you're at. And so the region's issues, the region's problems become your problems. Mm -hmm. So it for, for, you know, and, and again, this is where it does break down a little bit, you know, Cubans in South Florida, I mean, they have an absolute allergy to anything remote to communism or socialism and mm -hmm. rightfully so. Rightfully so. Now that's different with even generations of Cubans, right? Mm -hmm. But whatever. <clears throat> um, well, that's that's different than people in West Texas, or people in Arizona, or people in Nevada, right? Or excuse me, Latinos there. Whatever the region is, like, look, poverty is poverty, right? If mm -hmm. you can't get a job, you can't you, you can't uh, put food on the table. You don't have good health insurance. That's no different than the white family that has that, the black family that or that doesn't have that, et cetera. 
it, the the Latin piece doesn't make a difference necessarily. Mm-hmm. And so in that piece, I try and say like, look, for a lot of Latin people in this country, you know, they have many things that make them analogous to, you know, white working class people, you know, kind of your coal miners or steel workers, right? A lot of Latin folks, not all, but a lot of Latin folks, <clears throat> they come here and they they work a lot of blue collar jobs. A, a lot of their needs, a lot of the things they're um, worried about are very similar to folks in Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, in terms of how do I have health care? How do I have good paying jobs? How do I have good labor laws? How do I have you know good rights when I'm working? Um, stuff like that. And again, I'm not saying that's all Latinos, obviously, but there's a lot of that. And if you're just wanting to, you know, for every four years, you know, say three sentences in Spanish in a debate and talk about immigration at Latinos, I mean, that, you're just going to see that the fastest growing minority in the country, you know, be absolutely irrelevant for you in uh, each election. Makes sense. So do you think um, there's a, particular strand i think you mentioned in the piece of like work ethic and family values and not to imply anything about any other culture but that's if you mention those two phrases especially like work ethic as relates to personal responsibility as opposed to dependence on the government do you think that that is part of latin culture that um is making some uh latino people more open to the republican idea at least as it's common commonly understood I think so. I mean, I don't want to, again, I don't want to generalize too much. Because, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's definitely, I think, I think a few things on that. I think, so yes, I agree with that. But one thing is, I think a lot of that comes from a, a Roman Catholic uh, background. I mean, most, okay. most uh, Latin countries are predominantly Catholic. Um, I mean, there's other religions, but you know, it's it's definitely healthy two thirds, three fourths majority of most Latin countries that it's Catholic mm-hmm. or folks are raised that way. And maybe they don't practice, but that's the way. So there's a lot of those values that are there, which is not that dissimilar to Catholics and or Protestants in the United States in terms of the value system. Now, again, before everyone gets upset at me, I'm not comparing Catholics and Protestants. Right. I'm not getting into that. <laughs> I'm not getting into that war. Right. I've done that war before. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying in terms of a general heuristic or general value mm-hmm. system um yeah personal responsibility work ethic again i'm not saying that white folks aren't that way and black folks or asians i mean these are all you know at the end of the day we're, we're you know we're people right and and it, it does rest on the individual of sorts but overwhelmingly so um i think because much of latin america again not all not all latin america but much of latin america has extreme poverty and poverty mm-hmm you have to figure it out. Like you will not eat, right? You will not have clean water. You will not have roof over your head. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make it work. You gotta figure it out. And when you have, you know, decades and and you know, I guess hundreds of years at this point of extreme poverty, you know, that does shape cultural norms, mm-hmm. right? And and I think that that's different. Um, than other uh, groups 
uh, in other countries. Experiences, yeah. Experience. yeah. It's kind of like, not exactly because it's not as long standing, but it's like, you know, there are certain kind of uh, norms now of countries in Western Europe post-1945. Why? Because everything in their backyard was blown to bits, you know? I mean, the, the, you know, much of these cities were in rubble after 1945. Mm-hmm. So there's a deeper appreciation. That's why they have a bigger, you know, social safety net. Um, that's why they have certain views historically on immigration. That's why they have certain views on globalization because their history in the past seven years has inf- 70 years has influenced, okay, how do we have our current norms? So I just think part of that, again, I'm not a sociologist, but part of, of Latin America is you have uh, decades and decades and decades uh, or longer of extreme poverty um, and, and or poverty. And so it's like, look, you gotta, you gotta figure it out. You gotta, you gotta make it work. So if you don't, like, there, there is no government assistance. <laughs> like that doesn't exist, right? It's like, this, you wouldn't even think about that, right? And so, I think when folks come here, now that that's going to change as we go downstream with with generations, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm first generation. Um, you know, my daughter's second generation now of sorts, kind of, but. Um, you know, as you get to second, third, fourth uh, generation, you know, Latinos, that might change a little. That might that might change a little. Sure. But I, I think currently where we're at, um, and, and again, you just have, you still have that infrastructure of like a semi-matriarchal kind of way. You know, grandmother is like, you know, <laughs> really central. important, yeah. very central figure. And, you know, when you have that generation um, that's still importing those kind of values from, you know, uh, Central and South America and the Caribbean, you know, that's still there. That's a part of your history. You have to, there's a much of being in touch with your your roots and your culture and et cetera. So I, I think that in terms of the personal responsibility, in terms of work ethic, you know, that's that the certain parties are a little bit more attractive, right? You know, I think kind of Republican Party could be uh, potentially more attractive. I also think that when you're talking about direct immigrants that that come here, the direct immigrants that are coming here are saying like, hey, I couldn't I, 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 I couldn't have my own business, right? I couldn't work hard and work my way up. That doesn't usually exist. Now, if you live in much of the major capital cities in Central and South American uh, countries, sure, you, that can happen. But, you know, it's still not the same. And realizing you're able to, hey, if I work hard, it can really pay off financially and status wise more so than there well the party that's saying hey <laughs> you're going to work hard and we're going to let you keep more of your money well that's an appealing message than mm-hmm. hey you're going to work hard but we got to make sure we take care of everybody else and that's just different because again it's it's not a either or but uh, uh you know i think african american families do this i think latin american families do this they already with their family unit and broadly in their community take care of each other typically Mm. not always but and so this whole kind of more massive approach of no we you know we got to just take a little bit more so we can just you know distribute it to the entire country of sorts right it's just kind Mm -hmm. of like uh there is a little bit of falls flat yeah yeah, it is a little bit more of a pushback on for some people i do think this is a not always just a cultural thing. I do think it is a generational thing. So third and Makes fourth sense. generation Latinos are probably going to be more uh, amenable to a kind of liberal notion and, and uh, immigrants first generation, a little bit less so. 
Got it. So now I want to ask you about how your background in clinical psychology kind of relates to how you approach <laughs> politics. Um, just because I, yeah, people this, that. yeah. Um, psychology is one of the like tangential themes of this podcast. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've had a couple psych- psychologists on here before, and I'm just curious to, um, yeah, to to get your take on, yeah, on on that subject. Yeah. So I mean, I think that. Um, I talked about this with, uh, who did I talk about this with? I think I talked about this with Ben Weingart. I think we talked okay. about this. Um, where, you know, psychology is the study of human behavior. Very loosely. Right? We want to understand how humans operate, how they behave, how they act. What's their psychological profile? What makes them tick? What's their um, emotional presentation? Etc. Right. So, you know, thoughts, feelings, behaviors, intuitions. That's what we're Mm -hmm. interested in for people, Um, individuals at at the very least. Social psychologists look at this groups of people. Right. Um, Yeah, I think that, look, I mean, I'm not a political scientist. I'm not a sociologist, but my framing on things comes down to. Well, how does this how do these uh, these political ideas or how do these social ideas, how do they sit and resonate with the individual? And how does that shape and change and maneuver and, you know, bend and flexible or inflexible for us as individuals, right? And how we're seeing these things. And so a big thing for me is, <clears throat> I mean, so just take, just take myself as an example. Everything I've just said for the past hour or so, you know, I said, I started out the the conversation saying I was center left, Mm -hmm. more or less. But there's a lot of themes that I just deep outlined that (laughs) makes conservatives very happy. They get very Mm -hmm. excited about this. And then they like to, you know, I'm the token. Let's see this lefty, you know, he's, he's all right. He's, he likes some conservative things, right? You know, but I think it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, because you know why? Because I listen to all of my fellow countrymen, I try to be, and I try and say, hey, what's your plight? What's, what are the things that are hard for you psychologically, emotionally, um, you know, some of the more particulars in, in, in the physical world? And how do I understand that? And then how do I connect with you with compassion? And so for me, when that translates up to politics is, well, I don't want to demonize one side or the other. You know, I pick on the left all the time, right? And I pick on the right all the time, right? Um, and I picked on centrists for being milk toast. I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, aside from, you know, kind of criticisms or maybe some, you know, harmful teasing, or, you know, not so harmful teasing, I want to just understand people, you know, and I want to understand why are they being pushed for these extremes, right? Or why are they checking out and they don't want to deal with any of it? Right. What is it about that? And how do we reach out to other people um, to hear them out, to hear their ideas? And how do you still connect with people? And for me, that's my, my, my goal isn't to, you know, I, you know, I get online and I see people trying to, you know, just argue till, you know, return of Christ, you know, just like, oh my gosh, it's like, you know, just keep going and keep going and keep going and making their points and trying to win an argument. And I hear that. I hear the passion, but. I really just am more curious about how do I understand this person in front of me? Mm-hmm. How do I understand what's making them tick? What's what's their 
what's important to them, what's important to their family, and how can I connect with them? I might, again, strongly disagree with them, but that's okay. We can still go get a beer afterwards. That's fine. Um, and, and so my world of clinical psych kind of comes that way. That's where that comes out um, in my ideas about politics and kind of my, my pragmatic centrism and all the rest. Cool. So, yeah, one other thing I mentioned what uh, talking beforehand was the notion of temperament. And this is something I'm not too familiar with. Like, I'm pretty familiar with the big five ocean model, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And I think openness tends to be associated more with the liberals. I think maybe agreeableness as well. Um, but... Uh, Temperament is something I've heard about as like a psychological concept. Maybe it's more murky to me. I'm not sure how you can inform me on that. And then if you could also answer like how you think temperament relates to um, ideology and I guess degrees of radicalism versus pragmatism. Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll just start off by saying, you know, I'm not an expert on, on, on uh, expert meaning I don't do. Um, personality research, you know, I don't, mm. I'm not publishing in journals on this stuff. Um, not that I'm opposed to it. I just, you know, that's not what I'm doing at the moment. Sure. <clears throat> uh, but yes, you know, big five, that's the kind of a theoretical model of personality. It's pretty, pretty solid in terms of the st uh, statistical reliability and validity. Um, and also cross cross culturally as well, which is mm. also a very strong, um, you know, point of it. Um, for me personally, so I'm more than willing to be wrong if, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> a colleague of mine or, mm -hmm. or a psychologist wants to get on and be like, oh my gosh, you know, Benia was completely wrong on this. Totally fine. You know, call me out. Um, the way I conceptualize it is, is that you have, you know, basically an umbrella where you have the self, right? Uh, the self is a hard thing to understand. I think the self is not kind of like you as a as a passenger riding in a car. I think the self is the totality of your experience, right? Um, and so, <clears throat> incorporated within the self is, I would say, personality. I would say experience, and I would say temperament. Um, I definitely think there's a distinction between personality and temperament. What that is specifically, I can't tell you because I'm. I'm not well versed in that, but you know, personality I think is usually I, I think they probably have a, a similar source, mm -hmm. right? In terms of of you know genetics, environment, but then also your experiences in your formative years, you know, first five years of life, and definitely you know first eighteen years of life. But you know, temperament is is something that I think is is malleable. Um, personality less so. Um, so again, I might be splitting hairs here, but you know, again, as an example, um, uh, you know, I'm a pretty passionate person about what I believe in, mm -hmm. but what I believe in could change over time and should change over time. I would say the diff, the, the, the constant is I'm going to, I'm going to try very hard to understand and what might make my points passionately. Like I'm invested. I feel passionate. I think that's partly temperament and partly personality. Um, they could be, you know, someone can listen to this and be like, yeah, they're the same thing, just synonymous. Okay, fine. 
Um, so I, 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 I don't want to speak too confidently on it, but I, I see them as incorporated under how we conceptualize the self, who we are as okay. humans. Um, uh, but I would imagine that there's a, uh, a lot of overlap. <clears throat> yeah, I think maybe just thinking out loud, uh, temperament might have to do with like the valence um, of emotions. Like if, if you have a, a passionate temperament, like you experience things to a high level um, of, de- of degree of emotion, um, possibly. And I think also it's interesting that you said you're very passionate because I, I don't think of myself as passionate. And I think that tends to be one of the reasons that I tend to be more moderate in my political beliefs is because I'm just sort of like more calmly reflecting on things. Whereas I think people tend to with strong beliefs tend to be like very sort of out loud, passionate, just upfront. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's something that is, again, I think the, I think I'm, 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 parsing out the passion with the belief mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the belief could be whatever right you could you could be passionate about uh skittles are better than m&ms fine they're not but fine no. <laughs> right you know or you could be um you know passionate about something else like you know or, or you could change you could be like you know what I was wrong on both accounts. You know, it's uh, Snickers candy bar. You know, it's it's not even the the small uh, candies. It's the it's the candy bar itself. That's what, you, and that's what you're passionate about. Okay, fine. The constant is you're passionate about what your beliefs are at that moment. Um, and I think that that's the temperament thing, right? That's the kind of shell of sorts that whatever you put in the or a cup, whatever you put in the cup is fine, but the cup is your temperament and parts of your personality. That that's how I would see it, but okay. Good. It's a great question though. And final question for you is can you tell me about a time that you heard an argument from someone you disagreed with and you thought, you know, you might have a point. Uh, yeah, there's been plenty of that. Um Yeah, I mean, it's, I've yeah, a lot. Of, I mean um Free will changed on that. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I was pretty, I was pretty religious when I was younger, so I changed on that. I mean, like I said, I'm pretty atheist at this point. Changed on that. Um, there's, uh, there's, uh, there's another example I wanted to give here. It, it really is a lot because I'm, I am, I'm a very, typically I'm a very open person, so. If mm-hmm. someone presents something well, I'll, I'll, cons- I'll literally consider it and I'll say, hmm, I haven't thought about that. Okay. Um, it probably drugs. Um, most people talk about drugs in negative ways, and there certainly are negative ways for people predisposed to addiction. But I think there's a lot of uh, curative aspects to it. I think there's a lot of healthy aspects to it. Um, I probably wouldn't have said that 10 years ago. Um, I think the scientific method, I've realized that there is a lot of value and a lot of strength in the scientific method the past 500 plus years, but it's not the be all end all. I think we need to understand the phenomenology of things. 
right? Before you get to a hypothesis, that hypothesis comes from somewhere. You haven't even done science yet. That's important. No, I'm not, I'm not putting up, I'm not, I'm not doing a weighing system, right? One is, you know, is you know, don't misunderstand. Right. I'm not saying I'm against it, but I, you know, I think that, you know, I, I become strangely, maybe it's just because I was very rigid for, you know, early part of my life, but I become more and more open as I become uh, older, which usually doesn't happen that way again. But again, it's, you know, I still have strong beliefs about things. So uh, I did a podcast where I was, uh, pretty strongly criticizing Brene Brown. I mean, I'm not a fan. <laughs> not about her as a person necessarily, mm-hmm. uh, but definitely her uh, quote-unquote idea. Approach to psychology. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I disagree with with folks. But, you know, I again, even in something like that, stuff I feel strongly about, uh, I criticisms about academia, you know, but I would be willing to to hear. So, but yeah, I mean, there's... I think the things I just listed are some pretty big ones that I've changed my mind on. Um, cool. And very open. So. All right. Well, Xavier Bunny, I thank you for coming on. You might have a point. All right. Thank you. That's all for today. If you have any feedback, please feel free to reach out. You can find my contact details in the show notes. Please also take a moment to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and take care.